So I'd like to continue from what I was exploring uh, last time, which is our experience of time and how this enters into our practice. I mentioned last time that the way that this developed for me was in over about the last year doing a series of talks primarily with the Spirit Rock Wednesday morning gathering, which is probably my main place that I teach regularly. I teach uh, probably about 25 times a year there and share the teaching with Sylvia Borstein. And typically either she or I. And I was exploring the theme of what are the characteristics of the ordinary conditioned unawake mind, we might say, or our, our ordinary being unawake. And then what are, what's, what it's the nature of awakening and our awake nature. And I found myself wanting to identify the characteristics of what we might call the ordinary mind and not go too quickly to awakening, at least in my discussion. If you can go very quickly to awakening, do it. (laughs) But at least in the uh, discussion, I found myself identifying like 10 different parameters of the ordinary conditioned mind. And this is really one way to focus on what our practice is. And we notice a lot of these uh, in our everyday practice. We focus, for example, on how our ordinary conditioning has us, especially in this culture, thinking all the time. And we can notice that and A lot of the mindfulness practice is seeing the different patterns of thinking, not being quite so hooked by them. A lot of them, of course, are helpful in different different times, but we can in our practice. This is often the initial insight, or one of the initial insights certainly was for me, that uh, I could really notice the patterns of thinking and some of them I could see just weren't so wise or helpful, right? Some of my patterns of thought. So we do that a lot. We may also, again, for me, very uh, significant when I was first practicing, we can see how we, uh, for example, relate to the body. Again, for a lot of us in this culture, we're somewhat disembodied. And we discover that. It was one of my major discoveries when I was practicing initially. That again, if one's thinking all the time, we don't have so much of the experience of the body. And interestingly, that was my experience even though I had been an athlete. I was a competitive swimmer. And uh, But even so, maybe partly because I was a competitive swimmer, I didn't want to be experiencing what I was going on in my body so much. And I'm sure when I was swimming, I was just thinking also, right? And so how many can relate to that, that our initial practice, we see how much we're thinking, how we're not so much in the body. Anyone? Yeah, very, very common experience. And so what I found myself doing, though, was identifying then other parameters of experience 
<clears throat> for example, what's another one that would, that's very much pointed to by the Buddha, what's our sense of self? What's our ordinary sense of self? And of course, we have an ordinary sense of self that we find as being separate from others, independent, and even though intellectually we know it's not the case, we tend to think it's permanent. And we can explore this in our meditation. And I went on to identify other parameters, um, and one of the one one of the most interesting ones for me that I hadn't ever really uh, given talks about much is time. That there are ordinary constructions of time, and the question was, how do we practice to explore the nature of our experience of time and open up to awakening? And last time I gave two main practices, or three main practices, for us to explore this territory. The first was to look at the nature of our experience of time, particularly our constructions of time. I'll come back to that in a moment. The second was to see if we could stay more in the present moment. And the third was to track change in time in terms of the pointers of the Buddha, this is to look at impermanence. And insight into impermanence, as many of you know, is one of the core areas, traditionally, of liberating insight. Knowing that things change. The idea is, if we actually could know much more fully and deeply that things change, we wouldn't... uh, be so reactive. We wouldn't grasp onto things so much because they're changing. And we wouldn't be so worried about the negative stuff because they're changing too. And it won't last. Everything's in process and change. So those were the three areas that we looked, that I invited us. To look at last time. And I'm going to go over those in a little more depth and then add a fourth area, which is related to what we did in the guided practice, which is that in, I would say, the depths of our practice, we can access what we might call a timeless awareness. And this is pointed to by the Buddha. It's also very much pointed to in other forms a Buddhist practice, sometimes more explicitly than it is in uh, insight practice, in Zen and Tibetan practice and so forth. So I want to explore those ways of practicing. Hear some from you about what you may have noticed, because a lot of people, I think, took on that uh, practice of seeing what our conditioning is, what our patterns are about time. But I want to begin, I think, uh, similarly how I began last time, by saying that there's something very mysterious about time. And this is uh, a poem which brings this out, this, this, this way that with time, where we take a lot of it for granted, that there's this flow of time, We tend to think it's objective, 
can be measured by clocks. We orient ourselves a lot. This talk is based on orienting to time and so forth. Uh, and yet there's a lot that's mysterious about time. One of them is, is that um, every evening when we sleep, we go into very different experiences of time. What's the experience of time in dreams or in sleep? It's, even though we might say that objective time continues, there's something mysterious about this transition between night and day, being asleep and being awake. And um, this poem brings this out, this mysterious. This is a poem from a collection of poems by Britt Posmer, not a well-known poet, but someone that I know from uh, a lot of uh, Tibetan meditation retreats, who's quite a, a wonderful poet and a, I think I find a, quite, a, quite a profound uh, mystic. So this is uh, from Britt. This is about uh, this movement between night and, and day, uh, dark and light. It's called Prelude. Rest long in the darkness of your fertility. Time will arise and you will wake in a field of brightness. Rest long in the darkness of your fertility. Time will arise and you will wake in a field of brightness. I want to start by again seeing the types of patterns that we notice in relation to time. I've already mentioned some of them. You know, the, the tendency to uh, be thinking and especially to be very much uh, future-oriented. Last time I, I mentioned that uh, when I look at my conditioning about time, so much of it is deeply, deeply um, socially and culturally based. That different societies have really different views of time. That uh, I mentioned how uh, America, U.S., is one of the most future-oriented societies. And uh, one of, the, I think when I mentioned some of the cross-cultural studies of how time is uh, experienced in different cultures, they mentioned that in, uh, in Britain, people tend to be oriented towards the past. <laughs> Maybe as the U.S. empire declines, we'll be oriented towards the past. We'll see. Maybe towards the future. Anyway, or towards the present, I should say. Anyway, uh, and I, I mentioned how in a, a number of languages, there aren't even any uh, future and past tenses. I mentioned that in terms of the Hopi. You know, in some indigenous cultures, don't really have future and past constructions. I... I also mentioned this very interesting fact that in Japan, a train is late if it is more than one minute off the schedule. Whereas in probably most European countries, it's like 15 minutes. 
And in India, it could be as much as a day. <laughs> right? That's what, that's what weight means, right? And so the constructions, uh, you know, uh, we, we know we can, we're often confine ourselves in the future to a large degree or uh, trying to control life with planning right? and perpetually being with plans or, uh, you know, the whole way that so much of our work we or we do one thing to get to somewhere else, 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 all in the future. It's like I go to school so I can get a good job, so I can have enough money to get a house in the future, so I can have enough money to do this or that, so I can have enough money to have a good retirement, so I can retire. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> right? And the whole thing is like almost like a little bit like a house of cards. What I found, I think, is very common. I, I for a period of time, taught in universities. And I would uh, always ask my students, how many of you think after graduation you'll be able to do what you really want to do? And about 10 or 15% of the people raised their hands. Right? And so the question is, when one gets in that future orientation that's hopefully leading to doing what you really want to do at retirement, will people even remember or know what they want to do? And so there's something that is obviously can be helpful about planning, but there also it can be excessive. So we know that quality of planning or we know the quality of always being in the future, you know, or rushing. And some of it's not just personal choice. A lot of it is just how much we seem to have to do, right? I sometimes joke that many of us would rather complete our to-do list than be awake. How many can relate to that? that completing your to, one's to-do list is very high up. It's probably higher up than any deep spiritual attainments, which, which, <laughs> which may or the deep spiritual attainments, are they on your to-do list? And even in meditation, it can be funny how many people meditate and have a sense of time and can't wait till you finish being in the present moment. <laughs> right? So all sorts of patterns we can know. <laughs> Interesting, right? Yeah. Okay. And I think, again, a lot of it is so much uh, socially and culturally constructed, right? Or we may... Uh, actually be so much in the future with one big exception. We won't die. I like to sometimes ask people to raise your hands if you think you will die. I'm not asking that, but <laughs> but uh, when I do that, even when I allow a considerable amount of time, less than half of the people raise their hands. So, all sorts of patterns, and I, I, I wanted to see if uh, 
wanted to hear from a few people, what kind of patterns in terms of your own relation to time did you notice? Let me just take a few and try to be on the brief side so we can hear from a few people, maybe just a few sentences. Anyone like to share what you noticed if you explored in the last week uh, the nature of your experience of time? Yeah, in the back. Well, let's wait for the mic. Hi, I'm Barbara. Hi. First of all, I noticed the things you're talking about, the yeah. amount of planning and the amount of time that I spent outside of the time I was claiming to be in, particularly when I was meditating. But I found something different happening just thinking about this this last yeah. week. Or, and it was that as I tried to clear my mind and stop doing all that, instead of pushing things away and out, I made a choice to bring it all in right here to the present. So even if I was planning or even yeah. if I was thinking of my now passed away mother in the future, to just bring it. And that was a very different experience. I think I started it maybe just yesterday, but I did it again yeah. today. And I like it. It's just a different thing with this clearing yeah. In some ways, not a huge difference. In other ways, a huge difference to this, to orient towards being in the present moment. From the point of view of being in the present moment, the experience of planning is a present moment experience. And if we shift in that way, it's very interesting. Now, I think for that to happen, we may need uh, to not be quite so automatic and not so wrapped up in thinking, right? Because that, that tends to take us out of the present moment. And so it may be, can I actually do planning and still maybe have a little bit of sense of my body or of my experience generally? It probably takes that, right? It takes something like that. Uh, but to have a sense of being in the present and thinking about the future, contemplating one's uh, deceased parent, let's say, right? Um, yeah, so thank you. Uh, Jim, please. Uh, well, lots of thoughts about it, but but just to stick with one, I noticed when I was meditating that um, I'd be sitting and uh, maybe say, for instance, okay, so I'm starting to get really calm. Oh, if I just take a modify my breath just this little bit, then I'm really, it's really going to put me into you know PT is going to arise or something's going to just yeah. really happen. So there's I'm just just in the future a half of a breath to two breaths ahead. Yeah. And then I'd get there and I'd go, oh, this is really just super nice. And and I went, wow, I just planned that out and it happened. And so I'm back in the past. And there's kind of just this this really rapid fluctuation that would That's continue right. on through. Um, so, so, so it wasn't without being present, but it was kind of moving in, you know, from the future to the present to the past to the present That's to great. the past to the future. And it was really just kind of interesting, fluid. Very interesting, and I also I can feel the touches of humor, right? It's like, oh, I'll meditate so that in the future I can be in the present moment. <laughs> and then I have a few experiences of the present moment, and then I start thinking about how cool that was in the past to have experiences of the present moment. 
right? So uh, the humor is interesting, right? But how many can relate to that, right? We do that. And in a sense, nothing wrong with that. It's just a lot of what we depend on, of course, in the mindfulness practice is just seeing the patterns and then assessing which do I want to encourage and which do I not want to encourage, which are helpful, which are not helpful. Maybe anyone else want to share something you found in exploring time, your experience of time? Going once? Okay, that's okay. We can have some more some more later during the discussion. And so yeah, so just seeing these patterns and again they when we look closely at some of them they, they there can be humor. You know, uh one that is very common is when we have experience in which we don't have a clear definition of what we're supposed to do. Maybe we have a day off or we're on a vacation. We've been so much in the pattern of filling up time with tasks, completing the to-do list, that often we get can get very nervous and anxious about time that's not filled in. How many can have experienced that at times? And so that's very interesting, right? And so p- part of us, oh, I really want to just uh, have an experience in the future in which I don't have anything planned. And then we get there and we're anxious. Right? It's interesting. Maybe not for too long, but there's anxiety because our identities are so wrapped up with doing, filling up time, having things organized in time, which again is something to look at that the how we understand ourselves in time, how we understand time in general, very connected to our sense of self. I think we could see that from some of what we just explored, right? That uh, I, if I have a, a strong sense of self as a doer, I'll be very much related to the doing, uh, doing in the future, planning so I can do, and if I don't do properly, I may uh, judge myself. Right. So the the whole structure of time very connected to the structure of self. That's something. And so when we actually look at our way that we construct time, we get some insights into again this area that's uh, so crucial traditionally in Buddhist practice to look carefully at the way that the construction of self occurs. And, and develops. In fact, you know, that when we learn how to be more in the present moment, we actually move away from a lot of the constructions of self. And we can even think of, you know, a very uh, famous passage, you know, from the uh, Christian Bible, where Jesus says, you must become as little children to enter the kingdom of God. And I think that, in part, has to do with uh, moving out of organized time. Because very young children don't experience time in the same way that adults do. That the constructions of time happen gradually, but they're not really fully in place till children are 8 or 9 or 10. 
And so you must become as little children to enter the kingdom of God. You know, could is a reference in some ways to uh, being more present-centered as children are much more present-centered and so forth. So our first practice was to learn better to be in the present moment. The passage again from the Buddha, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. So we're invited to stay with the present moment. Our core mindfulness practice has those instructions. Be with the breath or the primary focus area. Try to stay in the present moment. Notice when your attention goes into past and future or various kinds of thinking. So very much at the center of our practice. There's a, there's a nice poem. This is from, uh, which is about that present-centeredness. This is a poem called uh, Do Light, D-E-U, D-E-W, I'm sorry, by W.S. Merwin. Now in the blessed days of more and less, when the news about time is that each day there is less of it. I know none of that. He's referring to being in the pre- more in the present moment. Now in the blessed days of more and less, when the news about time is that each day there is less of it, I know none of that. As I walk out through the early garden, only the day and I are here with me before or after. And the dew looks up without a number for a present age. So it's pointing to that possibility of being in the present moment. And one of the, one of the ways that we can really access the present moment is something that I think we do quite often through what uh, some people call the flow state which is, I think, also an experience of selflessness. This is, uh, many of you know, the concept of flow developed by the Hungarian psychologist Csikszentmihalyi. And it's this sense of being fully engaged in an activity. When one is fully engaged, fully present, there's typically no sense of time. One's using all of one's energies. And there's... uh, Joy, there often is joy and a sense of, uh, of happiness. A sense of, of happiness. This is, this is from Csikszentmihalyi. With flow, a person performing the activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement, and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, flow is characterized by complete absorption in what one does. So, that's something which is pretty accessible, right? And so we can meditate and access the present moment. We can also engage in this flow experience. And I think we do it more than we think when we're really fully with our work or with gardening or with painting or with singing or dancing. There's a way that we're very full with the experience in the present moment, often no sense of self, 
often very joyful. And that's an access route to the present moment that I think we can pay more attention to. That we can access that flow experience in those activities, but just very ordinarily washing the dishes, taking a walk. Can you just be with that fully? That's an access route to being present. And I think it's uh, very close to what we may experience in, in meditation. It's something that one can experience in uh, all these different activities, in painting, art, sports, very common. How many people can relate to that sense of that flow experience, being with the earth? This is from... Uh, this is from a wonderful book by uh, uh, a local friend named uh, Andrew Cooper who wrote a book called Playing in the Zone, which has uh, stories from uh, the world of sports. And this is from uh, Bill Russell, the great basketball player from the area, went to University of San Francisco. And this is him talking about being in a flow experience. And notice how he goes beyond the ordinary sense of time. He played for the Boston Celtics. How many people have heard of Bill Russell? Okay. He's a great a great one. Okay. Okay. Every so often a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and would be magical. The feeling is difficult to describe and I certainly never talked about it while I was playing. When it happened I could feel my play rise to a new level. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if I was playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball in bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except that I knew that everything would change if I did. Out of an ordinary sense of time, fully immersed in that flow experience, right? So a second way that we can practice is to explore impermanence. And this is also, can be fairly ordinary, that we can do this meditatively by simply sitting and watching how things change. Could be the breath. Just watch, oh, in and out. Feel the different sensations. Just notice change. Not looking for any big experience, the key is that you keep doing this enough. Do this for half of your meditation for a week or for a month, and you'll start to see things differently. You can do it on a retreat. I've sometimes done this on retreat for uh, days on end, just being with the flow of change. And it can really, uh, my experience, I think I mentioned this last time, my experience in doing that, it brings about a lot of joy. It's almost like I'm watching life up close, just this continual change. And you can do this. The a way to do it uh, easily is is to focus just on one sense. You could just focus on sound, for example. Notice the sound arising, changing, passing away. Another sound. You can do it with sound. You can do it with body sensations. Just noticing 
how body sensations keep on changing. You can do it with all of experience. Just sit there. You have to have the mind pretty quiet, but just sit and watch the continual change. And again, uh, not a conceptually profound experience or teaching, but the noticing of change just can have this very, uh, very profound effect to notice change. And, you know, the, I, I'm not going to talk so much about it, but some of what I've explored is looking at how physicists understand time. And there actually are different views. Some, you know, some influenced by Einstein see time as intimately connected with space. But others disagree with that and see time as more fundamental and time as intimately connected with life, with with change. That time, the essence of uh, time has to do with change according to according to physics. And so we can we can explore that and study that. Another way that we can work with both change and with the present moment is looking at how so many of our patterns relate to actually uh, experiences from the past which are painful, have been painful and are not fully resolved. That if we have anything like trauma or wounds from the past, and a, a part of practice is to work through those. And we can see how much the past is still there in our being, in our difficult areas, our wounds, our traumas, our difficulties. And there are a lot of different ways to work with that. Um, I, w- I was reflecting, because in the last few days, I was, I've been working with someone who is doing sustained working through of trauma. And I found uh, this person saying, when I'm in the present moment, I'm safe. When the trauma leads me to think, oh no, this is going to happen in the future and go to a narrative or go to something about the past, I'm not safe, this person says. When I'm in the present moment, free of narratives about past or future, I'm safe. Interesting, right? Interesting. So that can be something we can explore. And then the the, the last area I wanted to talk about, let me see where my notes are on this. The last area I wanted to talk about is this area uh, that we explored some in the guided practice, which we could call the capacity to access a kind of timeless awareness. And this is again pointed to uh, by the Buddha. It's pointed to really by many teachers. This is from uh, Achan Mahabua from the Thai forest tradition, who also was a student of Achan Mun, whose practice of accessing timeless awareness I gave. This is Achan Mahabua. 
Although all phenomena without exception fall under the laws of impermanence, dukkha, her unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, the true nature of the mind doesn't fall under these laws. Interesting. So it's basically saying impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and a lack of a solid self, the traditional Buddhist areas of insight, liberating insight, are true of phenomena, but they're not true, we might say, of our natural awareness or the awareness, the deep awareness that knows phenomena. I'll go on here. The true nature of the mind doesn't fall under these laws. The natural power of the mind is that it knows and does not die. This deathlessness is something that lies beyond disintegration. This non-disintegration is something which lies beyond impermanence, uh, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, and the common laws of nature, but we are not aware of it because conventional realities become involved with the mind and surround it. And so the Buddha talks about the deathless. And points to ways of accessing that kind of experience. And in other traditions, it's also mentioned. Uh, let me see where this uh, quote from Zen. Well, let's see. I'm not sure. Well, this is from the this is from the Tibetan tradition from uh, a Tibetan teacher named Kenpo Solchum Gyamso Rumpeshe. Until concepts are exhausted. There is time, and you make preparations. However, you should not grasp onto time as truly existent, and you should know that within the essential nature of the mind, time does not exist. And so different teachers and sages point to that kind of timeless awareness, and it's something that we can actually access pretty easily. How many people had some sense in the guided practice of an awareness beyond a sense of time, or that just didn't have a sense of time. How many people felt something like that? Not hard to access, and there are different ways of doing that, you know, that uh, different teachers uh, work with. That, that, that the, this, some teachers call it non-dual awareness, or timeless awareness, and so forth. It's pointed to by many traditions. It can be accessed pretty readily, Having that be stable isn't so easy. But accessing it isn't so hard. You know, again, the technique used by Achan Man and brought forth by different teachers in the Thai forest tradition is to focus on the ordinary phenomena of experience, sensations, thoughts, and it helps to have the mind fairly quiet when you do this. Focus on the sensations, the thoughts, everything coming through, and then step back and let the awareness, knowing everything, be more in the foreground. And see if you can just have that awareness be there and notice that it's there's not thinking involved with the awareness. There's not time involved with the awareness. There's not any subject-object structure with that awareness. And again, that's taken to be a place where there's a deep freedom and actually it it connects with love and compassion as well. 
And that's pointed to as a place to live from increasingly in our practice by many traditions. And you can find counterparts in other spiritual traditions. And from that place of a kind of timeless awareness, we can actually then live within time, but understand that it's a kind of construction. So you don't get rid of time fully, but one's relationship to it changes. So we're not so bound up with it. But the way to this, maybe just to end, is to go, I think, go through these different practices to continually look at the patterns of one's mind in relation to time. Do that over and over again. We have to see those clearly. Learn, secondly, more how to be in the present moment in the ordinary practice of mindfulness. Be more present-centered with our breath, with food. Use those flow experiences, which are very accessible and very ordinary, to go into the experience of being in the present more. And of course, being in the present more can shade into this timeless awareness at times. Something like what Bill Russell was reporting isn't so far away from that timeless awareness. And he reports almost like psychic phenomena happening. Oh, I can know the future here. Interesting. And so then explore impermanence, third practice. Fourth practice, find ways to access, even for a short time, so to speak, timeless awareness. That's, That's what I'm suggesting. That's what I've found has come out of this exploration. Those are four practices that can help us explore this. Maybe I'll end here and open things up to any uh, questions or uh, sharing of any kind. We have about 10 minutes or so. Thank you for your kind attention. Yeah, just some time maybe just for a reflection, anything there for you, anything where you want more clarification or you want to share maybe some of your own explorations or just ask a question. Thanks. Uh, Jim, please. So I'm just curious to have your thoughts about, you know, I think that, um, I let's say I have the experience of timeless, of um, unconditioned or something to that effect. But I philosophically or scientifically, I think that it's all phenomena within my brain that's um, or arising from, you know, emergent properties from the brain. Mm-hmm. So that it is, in a sense, all contained within time-bound molecular, submolecular activity, and so on. But it feels timeless and beyond. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We can, uh, I mean, I have some people I know who are actually doing neuroscientific studies of timeless awareness, right? They can see, they can notice uh, correlates in the brain. They can know, oh, when those experiences occur, this part of the brain lights up, right? This part of the uh, brain is activated. This part of the brain, particularly 
the part of the brain connected with conceptualization isn't happening much, right? They can notice that, but the, you know, the, uh, as it were, the scientific understanding, as you say, is, is distinct from the experience, right? And uh, from, from a philosophical point of view, we can't assume that because we can give a scientific account of it, uh, that, that, so to speak, uh, means that the experience of the timeless is actually not real. Philosophically, that's called reductionism. Right? And it's usually a uh, improper move. <laughs> uh, the question is, you know, what, you know, which is primal? Yeah, is the, you know, most of the voices in the Buddhist tradition would say that aware, out of awareness come phenomena. But I won't go there too much. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Regarding flow. Okay. I'm, I'm well acquainted with the experience and things that I consider to be productive and meaningful, but I'm also aware of how I can go on my phone or computer and time evaporates. You know, yeah. 45 minutes later, I realize I've been surfing on AliExpress looking at running pants and I can be for two hours listening to music, playing video game like yeah. uh, Hearts and time is gone. And I don't really feel as if I've been in flow even though a lot of those phenomena are the same. Yeah, that's a good, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I would not tend to think that that's a flow experience. But it has aspects of it, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, now, Chiksen Mahalaji developed his sense of flow before... And I haven't heard him revise his account. Is he still alive? Anyone know? Or has he flowed on? <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's uh, the the way I, the way uh, flow experience was described. It it was like an experience involving all the senses. It wasn't quite so narrowly focused on thinking. And so, but I don't know. It's, it raises a question. I don't know if I have a clear answer because let's think of a writer is totally in the imagination, might be in the imagination for three hours and just fully in that flow and in, in a kind of imaginary world. You know, I, I'm, I'm a writer. I've written a few books. And there's something very beautiful about being in that, right, which has parallels with that sense of flow. So is there a sense of flow when you're just totally surfing from one internet site to another? I don't know. What, uh, it's, it's, um, what do you think? Yeah, I, actually I haven't reflected on that before, but uh, it's, it's a good question. Uh, 
I tend to think that there are limitations with that experience that may be different from different from even from that experience like of a writer being just like a a novelist imagine being in another world for two hours doing writing I don't know but I'd be open to other people reflecting I don't have a my intuition is that it's different and not quite full but I I don't know if I can say why clearly right now be open to other people's views If you can be brief, Jim, so we can have to, some yeah, other to people. To be dharmic, maybe um, the, the states of bliss have to be connected to sila also. To That's a good point. Yeah. So, so you can have flow that's associated with uh, terrorist acts, maybe, or something like that. But it wouldn't be something that we would say is an a, Yeah, um, yeah. Whether you, can, you, can have, uh, you can certainly have concentration and mindfulness. That's why, you know, in the Buddhist tradition... They speak of right mindfulness or right concentration. You can be deeply concentrated and very, very mindful, uh, but not in a not in a helpful way, in a way that could be unethical. So I think probably most people um, have a sense, often, of knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. know exactly what's going to happen in even tiny things. So I'm wondering if that's something to do with like fluidity of time. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this, and we'll, we'll move on to the to the closing. But yeah, I think there's something that's uh, it's like that Bill Russell story of going into a timeless place where he had premonitions about the future, and. Um, how many people have had experiences like that where you have some sense of some some way that you're not in the ordinary construction of time, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's about half the people here. And, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I, I mean, I, I know this is a, a Brit who, who I know from an, a lot of retreats. She has that developed to a high degree uh, in many ways. And... Uh, and certainly, the Buddha seems to have that, certainly, that ability to know the future and the past, right? That's there very, very clearly in the tradition. So it seems that if uh, one goes to a timeless awareness, one may be able increasingly to know in different ways that are not bound by time. That's certainly what uh, many people report. And certainly what we find with the Buddha. So let me know what you find in the future. Okay, so I want to close. Um, let's see. Let me read... Uh, Two cards, and we'll do a metta practice to close. And I want to uh, thank you in advance for the dana. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. So.
bringing to our awareness Michael Witchy, who has depression. For Jezebel, whose mother and sister are dealing with health issues. And for all other beings who are in difficulties, let's bring the sense of our own goodwill, our own care. If you can locate that in your heart, in the center of the chest, the heart center, This wishing well for the people named Michael and Jezebel. Let that sense of wishing well be there in the center of your chest, in your heart. Let it begin to radiate out from your heart in front and in back, left and right, above and below. So that it starts to fill up this entire hall wishing every one of us well. May we be safe. May we be happy. May we be as healthy as possible. May we be held by love. Have a sense of that radiating heart filling up this entire space with the energy of care, wishing well. And then let it move beyond the walls out into the areas beyond this hall, out into Berkeley. And let it continue radiating out, moving through the Bay Area radiating out from the heart in all directions, touching all beings, increasingly with this wish that they be well, be as healthy as possible, safe, held by love. And finally, let your heart's energy radiate out left and right, front and back, above and below, in all directions, without limit, a sense of the immeasurable nature of one's hearts radiating out kindness, goodwill, without limit in all directions. This vast energy of metta meta-awareness in all directions. We close by bringing the attention back to being here in this room. May our time together be of benefit to ourselves. May our practice and our time together be a benefit to those in the circles of our lives. 
And then going back to that sense of the heart's energy radiating in all directions without limit, may we offer the benefits of our time together, of our practice to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for your kind attention. And continue to explore time. Let me know what you find. Thank you.